Well, if you would turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. As we continue in our series in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 8 this evening. And I would ask that you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God is indeed completely authoritative. It is totally sufficient. And it is pure and without any error. Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 through 12. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon His Word in our lives. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening, Lord, that you would attend your word with power, that by your Holy Spirit, you would change us, you would renew us, you would remind us of all that you have done for us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please make us more into the We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been looking at the book of Revelation now for some time. You may recall that I said to you that 
the book of Revelation is set up in a certain type of genre. It is a certain type of literature, apocalyptic literature. And as such, it's very vivid. It's almost technicolor. It's almost comic book-like in its vivid images. The words being conveyed not so much by the, the words of text, but the words of description and images. And here in chapter 8, we have beginning what I believe is the third cycle in a repeating cycle describing how God is victorious. How, as the old saying goes, we know the end of the Bible. God wins. And so this is a third description here as we see this last seal opened up and then the trumpets begin. We're going to look at the first four of them this evening. But I want you to notice that this is, once again, from another description, from another angle, the same story being described that we saw first in the letters to the seven churches and then later in the seals. But as we begin this chapter, there is an odd first verse. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This seems unusual to us. It perhaps answers some fanciful questions like, will there be time in heaven? It appears that at least at this point there is. And it's calculated by the hour because there is silence in heaven for half an hour. But after having just looked at the previous six seals with all of their descriptions of, of judgment, pain, of destruction coming upon earth, we look at the seventh seal and perhaps we're left a bit wanting. You know, previously we had seen, we had seen the earth quake. We had seen the sky turn to blood. We had seen all sorts of magnificently powerful displays by God. But here, the seventh seal, the last seal, the ultimate seal is opened and we just have silence. What is this? Is this emptiness? Is this meaningless? Is this, perhaps as some think it is, just merely a dramatic pause before the next thing to come? As a matter of fact, some are so concerned about this that they fill this seal with the contents of the seven trumpets. They take the trumpets and place them in the seal. I don't think this is the case. But I also don't believe it is empty or meaningless. It's kind of like, you may have noticed that on some occasions when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is music playing in the background. And in some occasions, there's silence. And that silence is not meaningless. It is meant to convey something. It is meant to convey an awe or a holiness about what we are doing. What happens, too, is we often bow our heads in prayer to prepare silently. We are coming into the presence of God, and as we come into the presence of the Lord, there are no words to use. Silence is awkward for us, but at times it is necessary. And we notice this, I think, when we see silence broken. Do you remember, perhaps, one of the most uh, famous breaking of silence that seems foolish? It happens in Luke chapter 17 as 
as the transfiguration occurs, and as Moses and Elijah come down, and as Jesus is honored, and Peter is sitting around, and he can't stand the silence. You know Peter. He's always got something to say. And he looks around, he doesn't know what to do, and he says, how about we build three little huts? That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And it's like, you've totally missed the point, Peter. (laughs) Something here is happening. You're on holy ground. You're before the king of the universe. Silence is appropriate. And this is true also in the Old Testament. So much of Revelation is dependent upon the Old Testament. Silence is a sign that the Lord is executing judgment from heaven. We see it in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We see it in Zechariah chapter 2. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is about to execute judgment here. And all of earth and heaven are silent before him. There is a time when we must simply gaze upon the Lord. To trust him. That we have no words to add. We have no actions to add. It's what the Israelites experienced in their escape from Egypt. Do you remember that story as the Israelites were going and Pharaoh's army was coming after them and it seemed that they were lost? Pharaoh's army on one side, the great Red Sea on the other side. What could they do? And I'm sure there was great hue and outcry. They thought that they were dead. They wanted to blame Moses. They wanted to blame God. And what does God say? He says, be silent and I will deliver. The sea opens up. And the Israelites are delivered. They are redeemed. And His judgment pours out on Pharaoh and his armies. You see, God calls us at times to silence so that we can remember that we are not God and we are not to judge God. Now, this is difficult for us as we live in difficult times, even as is being spoken of here in Revelation. There's another example of silence that I think is a reminder to us as we go through trials and tribulations. It's the story of Aaron and his sons. His two sons offered up strange fire. And for that, they were struck dead in Leviticus 10. Fire came down from heaven and struck them dead. And Moses explained to Aaron that this was God coming forth in judgment because His commands had been disobeyed. And there's this small phrase in Leviticus 10.3. It says, Aaron was silent. He had nothing to answer. He had nothing to accuse. Because God was God. If we remember this, we will not only be silent, it will give us great comfort as we think about brain tumors, cancer, illnesses, job losses, we will know that as much as we fret, as much as we desire to solve things, as much as we desire to complain or weep, that God is in control, even of the worst possible situations. This is the silence in heaven. Well, the silence gives way to the noise of trumpets. Look with me down, if you would, at verse 6, where skipping intentionally the next few verses to come back to them. 
Seven angels had seven trumpets and were prepared to blow them. Now this is, as I've said before, this is now the third cycle. The second cycle has been completed with the seventh seal that God is in judgment over the earth, that God is in control, that God wins. And now we begin back again where we were in chapter 6. There are seven angels. Some think that these seven angels are the seven angels, each of the seven churches in Revelation 1 through 3. That would make sense because there is a symbolic use of seven over and over again in Revelation. There are seven of these cycles we've been talking about, and we'll see them in a bit. And this is a bit like different camera angles. Perhaps you've watched a movie or a television show where there is an angle first from the front and then from the side and then from the back. They they show different things. They're shooting the same subject, but from a different angle. This is also the way that I think we best view the Gospels. There are not four different Gospels. There are four complementary Gospels, each looking at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ from different angles. And so here these seven trumpets now begin this next cycle. What are trumpets? Well, the easy answer is a trumpet is something that Dean plays on Sunday morning. I say that only half facetiously because you can tell when Dean plays, can't you? When he comes in, there's no mistaking it. Because the trumpet, really even more than a musical instrument, is an instrument of war. Back in the old days, before our armed forces had radios and walkie-talkies and Bluetooth and everything else, the only way to control an army was to blow a trumpet. And buglers had to learn various calls. One call meant advance, and one call meant retreat. And if it was misheard, troops would do the wrong thing. Trumpet was very important. It was an instrument of warning and of alarm. And I think that helps us to see what is going on here in chapter 8. In chapter 6, we saw the seven seals of judgment, and those seals showed the world from the perspective of God's people. You remember we saw that, that there was comfort in those seals? God had told the martyrs that He had not forgotten them. God had told the people that He had preserved them. He had actually sealed them from every nation and tribe. Well, now here in chapter 8, we have the same series of events, as it were, the same outpouring of the judgment of God, but it is not seen from the comfort of God's people. It's seen from the view of the world. Seals are comforting. Trumpets are warning. This is the view of the world. And we can see this again with Old Testament imagery. One of the favorite stories from the Old Testament for children is the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, isn't it? We even have songs made up about it. We love to sing them. We love to tell the story of how the Israelites marched six times around the city of Jericho. And then the seventh time that they marched around that city, what did they do? They blew the trumpets. And as soon as they did, the walls fell down and God's people entered into the promised land. They entered into their inheritance. God judged the world. Trumpets are also called 
are also played to call us to war, to gather together. In Numbers chapter 10, Israel is summoned together for their holy assembly by the call of the trumpets. But perhaps the best known trumpet sound in all of the Bible is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. It's the trumpet that describes and announces the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes this, that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It is a call that victory is at hand, that the battle is won. This is what trumpets are for. They create in us an expectation of a war, an expectation of an announcement of the victory of God. And for the world, then, that creates an expectation of judgment. Because those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who reject Him, have no hope. As we saw in Revelation chapter 6, they pray that the mountains would fall down upon them. There is nothing that awaits them but a a fearful judgment. So this is what we see. The first angel blows his trumpet and hail and fire falls down, mixed with blood. And these are thrown upon the earth. Then the second trumpet is blown and a mountain or something like a great mountain is thrown into the sea. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then in the third trumpet... A great star falls down from heaven and makes the waters poisonous. And the fourth trumpet blows and the sky is blotted out to a third of its light. And so we see there is a totality of judgment here. Earth, sea, and sky. That is not a coincidence. But at the same time, this is not the final judgment because it is only a third of these areas that are affected. Now, this does not mean that outside Houston, Texas... When the first trumpet is blown, 33.33% of all trees will be burnt up. That's not what it is meant to mean. It doesn't mean that 33% of all of our water will become bad. What it means is God is limiting His judgment. He's actively restraining the totality of His judgment. He is even in judgment showing patience to His enemies. What a gracious God we serve. That even in His judgment, He shows restraint. How many of us would do likewise? We would pour out our wrath, I think, to the full. These judgments come upon an unbelieving world. And so we see things like a mountain, something like a great mountain thrown into the sea, and we can't help but think of mountains being described in the Old Testament as kingdoms. Each kingdom that opposes God is destined to be overthrown, is destined to see dust and death. Because only God can be victorious. When we see all of this destruction, we are reminded that the curse is still at work. That we do not live where we will. We are not who we will be. We live in a world marred by sin, marred by the curse that Paul describes in Romans 8. 
For ever since sin entered the world and rebellion against God, we see destruction and death. One commentator puts it quite pithily. He says, For Adam, the garden became a graveyard because of sin. And this is what we observe throughout all of the world. And we long and desire for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back to redeem us, to to take from us illness, sickness, disease, hunger, want, poverty, death. And these trumpets announce that God is on the march. Now, we may be impatient, but God knows exactly the day and the time. These trumpets and these disasters, these calamities, actually hearken us back to a time several thousand years before this was written. As we think about the world becoming mixed with blood, we can't help but think about the Nile River turning to blood. As we think about a great mountain being thrown into the sea. We think about the destruction that came upon Egypt. As we think about the stars and the moon and the sky being darkened, we think about the great blackness that overtook Egypt. Now, these are not one-for-one correlations, but they remind us that God has been visiting in small measure His judgments upon unbelievers and unbelieving kingdoms for thousands of years. Because He is patient. He knows the certainty of his time. So what do we do with this? There is silence because we know that judgment is coming. And we see that judgment in these trumpet blasts. How do we as Christians interact with this? How do we know what to do? How to think? What is our place in this rolling redemptive history of the Lord? Well, that's what I think we see here in verses 2 through 5. There is silence. There are seven trumpets. And our last S would be there is smoke and incense. After the silence of about a half an hour, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. You see, we go back to this interlude and we see why this interlude is not really just filler. It's not dead space. It is actually the key to all of the rest of this section we will be looking at. It is because the Lord is at work and the Lord is on the move and it shows that the Lord answers the prayers of His people. This shows us the power of prayer. Revelation is image-laden, but it's not just visual, because that's not our only sense. We hear, we hear here about the prayers of the saints, and it's described in terms of incense. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have great experience with incense. And so I find it difficult to really get the picture of that in my mind. So I'll tell you something a little bit more contemporary that I think will evoke images. Have you ever been walking in the mall and walked by the perfume counter? 
You ever walked by the perfume counter while testing was being done? You know, there's some ladies that want to find out what their perfume should be and some make the mistake of trying one perfume on this wrist and another perfume on this wrist and one on their neck and the smells just become overwhelming, don't they? It's almost an assault on your nose because it's not just one person, it's the result of dozens of people going by and being tested. I often wonder how the ladies who man those areas don't faint. But you see, this is what's described with incense. Incense is a very powerful smell. And as soon as I have been describing to this, you have images in your mind, don't you? You perhaps hearken back to places you've been. Maybe even you are reminded of dear loved ones and specific perfumes that they wore. You see, that's what John is doing for us. He's describing for us in vivid detail the power of prayer. He doesn't just want to tell us about prayer. He wants us to love and catch prayer. It's powerful. And this powerful fragrance of the incense means that our prayers are accepted before God. Over and over and over again in Leviticus and Numbers, the sacrifices that are acceptable before God are described as a sweet savor. I won't read them to you. I'll just give you the references to give you an idea of how often. Leviticus 1, nine, verse 13, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 5, verse 16. And then one chapter from Numbers, Numbers 15, verse 7, verse 10, verse 13, verse 14. Verse 24, 35 times in these two books, a sweet savor is described as going up to the Lord as acceptable sacrifices are made. You see, God accepts our prayers and the the wondrous thing is that our prayers are actually mixed with His power. Do you see that here? The angel took the censer in verse 5 and filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth and that causes peals of thunder and rumblings and an earthquake. Judgment comes forth because of the prayers of the saints. Now you ask me, if God is completely sovereign and He is in control, how does prayer work? And I answer, prayer works because God desires the prayers of His people. And He fills them. He fills them with the desire to pray to Him, to seek Him. And so there is real power in prayer. So the next time you wonder whether you should be praying for someone who is sick, or should be praying for revival, or should be praying for change, remember that the prayers of the saints bring about the judgment of the earth. That's how powerful they are. They are mixed with God's power because He desires it. Do you see how this happens? It's very interesting. There are seven angels here in verse 2. And then John almost says, And another angel came and stood. And he stood at the altar and he was given the incense and he mixed it with the smoke of the incense. Who is this other angel? Well, I think it helps us to understand that the word angel means messenger. And I think that this angel is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For is it not He who takes our prayers before the throne of God and makes them acceptable? Are not our prayers found and acceptable because of His work alone on the cross? He is our mediator. And as our mediator, He is our priest. And as our priest, He brings before the Father our prayers. We see this in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. In all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. The angel who is before the throne. You see, our prayer has power. We have ability to go through the judgment. We can understand and stand before the silence because of what Jesus has done. Jesus gives meaning to the silence. Jesus gives hope in judgment. And Jesus gives power in prayer. It really is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're tempted this week to despair, to not have hope, if you're tempted to fret and worry, think about Revelation chapter 8. Think about the one who has bought you with his own blood, who stands before the throne of God, and who makes every prayer that you make in his name acceptable before God by his work. Praise be to the Lord for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.